0: You're listening to The Grid, energy conversation for The Serious. If you're listening from energy-starved Europe right now, you'd probably be happy to swap Australia's problems for your own. Australia is the world's second largest coal exporter. In 2022, it exported twice as much coal as Russia. It's the leading exporter of natural gas, with exports three times larger than Russia, And it's the fourth largest producer of uranium, and almost all of that is exported for reasons that we'll go into later in the podcast. Yet at home, the Australian energy system is experiencing a deepening energy drought. A perennial shortage of gas in the southern states has pushed up prices, leading some gas generators to switch to diesel. The main electricity grid linking the eastern states, known as the National Electricity Market, or NEM, is running low on dispatchable power as coal-fired generators are pulled out from the market to be replaced largely with intermittent wind and solar. The explanation for the Australian energy drought, just like everything else in the energy field today, is complex. But at its core, it comes down to catastrophic market failure, misallocation of capital and resources on a lavish scale that would have had Adam Smith scratching his head. So what's wrong with the Australian electricity market? And more importantly, how the heck do we fix it? Stephen Wilson is an energy economist with 30 years experience of the energy sector in 30 countries. He's adjunct professor at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, where I caught up with him recently for this conversation. Stephen, welcome. We're always being told that climate and energy is complex. So let's try and unpack the complexity. And I think it might take us more than one podcast. But I think we'll start today with the energy market, because once you understand how the national energy market works, I think some things start to fall into place. So the national energy market was formed in 1998. It is one of the longest interconnected power systems in the world, stretches from Port Douglas all the way down to Port Lincoln, doesn't include Western Australia, but encompasses the Eastern states. It's 5,000 kilometers between the top and the bottom, but about 40,000 kilometers of transmission lines in between and the idea was what so that you could have an well as it says a national energy market in which states could link up their separate power supplies and compete with one another is that essentially it i think that's a good summary if
1: what you basically summarise there actually is in a sense the physical system that connects generation and customers through transmission and distribution lines and the market is a layer that operates on top of that physical system But the interconnection of what were separate state-based systems happened. uh, Some of that happened before there was a market layer on top, and some of that happened afterwards. So, for example, the connection of Queensland through into New South Wales, the connection of Tasmania to Victoria, that actually happened after the market layer was put on top of the physical system.
0: Let's just deal with that physical connected system first. So you've immediately got problems when you think about the distance compared to, say, a grid that connected, say, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, or even Britain and the European Union.
1: Yeah, so the physical connection of a you know, geographically dispersed system is a technical challenge. And you know, the Australian system, as you've indicated, is very long. People call it a long, skinny system. You know, we've got about 25 million people thirty say thirty five thousand megawatts of peak demand on the system today so it's not the biggest physically biggest system in the world but it's one of the longest and thinnest and yeah so there are engineering challenges with that and the, the characteristics of the system are going to have an influence on how it behaves and operates as a market that's and
0: there's sure. a built-in sort of fragility there too isn't there and constraints because yeah uh, there's only basically one interconnector at the moment between most states is that right or two between yeah yeah there are there are separate lines that connect but it it's essentially like a
1: long you can visualize it like a long linear system essentially yeah but we should we should probably say here you said the national energy market we should probably say what we're talking about is the national electricity market and there are other forms of energy as well so there's a gas market and the electricity and the gas markets are inter- interlinked with each other through gas-fired power generation. So what, what we're talking about at the moment is the, is the electricity
0: system. Yeah. Which I correctly should have called the natural electricity market, market cause, yeah. a, a bit of course, but that's a common confusion which doesn't help the debate. We might come to that yeah. later, yeah. why we shouldn't confuse electricity and energy. So in 1998, when it's set up, there is no renewable energy or perhaps even just a little bit of experimental renewable energy happening in Australia, right? There's nothing of any size or significance. We're talking about coal largely with a bit of gas, tiny bit of hydro.
1: Yeah, more than a tiny bit of hydro. But um, it's what engineers would call, classically would call a hydrothermal system at that time. So the foundation of the system is a set of coal-fired power plants. And then complementary with that, you've got hydro generation. Most notably, the snowy scheme between Victoria and New South Wales. Yeah. And when so when you say renewable energy, again, we, we need to be a little bit careful about terms. So I think what you're referring to is solar PV, both on rooftops and, and large solar farms and wind farms. But when people talk about renewable energy, they're often lumping in the legacy hydro generation, including the snowy system. So yeah, you're quite right that when the market was set up as an extra layer on top of the physical system. There was no large-scale solar or wind power in the system at that time. And it wasn't really... The, the characteristics of that kind of generation were not probably thought about in great depth by the people who did all the technical or technical and economic work to put a market layer on top of the physical system.
0: So 2006, so it's been operating for eight years, the Howard government, towards the end of its period in office, does a review. That review comes out and says, well, it seems to be working fairly well. Uh, indeed, there has been some downward pressure on prices. Uh, how much of that was the NEM, the National Electricity Market, is probably impossible to say. But certainly, you know, if you look at it, there was a slight decrease in electricity prices, retail electricity prices, during that period, right?
1: Yeah. So let's, But let's take a little bit of a step back, because there was a a forerunner to the NEM, the National Electricity Market, which was the Victorian Power Exchange. So that was actually implemented in the state of Victoria. I can't remember the precise date, but it was, I want to say around the mid-1990s, several years before the national market. And so when the Kennett government came in in, in Victoria, the, state gov- the new state government, they made some big decisions. And one of those decisions was to privatise the what was the old uh, State Electricity Commission, by selling off the power plants and the the networks. And so they had to decide, should we implement a sort of American-style regulation of private owners or should we implement a competitive market, which we tend to think of as like a UK-style competitive market, which was actually the concept for that was actually invented at MIT in America but was implemented in the UK before it was deployed in parts of the US. And so the, the Victorian government said, well, let's have a competitive market, not American-style regulation. And then that market sort of got up and running. And then subsequently, when the national market was established, it was established on basically the same lines and, and sort of essentially linked into one big market. And, and so, uh, yeah, so you're right. I think the, the general observation was through those years was that there was competitive downward pressure on prices and you'll find you know, general commentary to that effect, you'll find also academic papers to that effect. And I think we can explain sort of fairly easily why that happened. The general, I think that the sort of magnitude of, of cost squeeze out that we saw is probably in the region of sort of five to 15%, depending on how you analyze it. So call it 10%, you know, give or take. And so people said, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great
0: success. We'll get on in a moment to what happens when we start introducing intermittent sources of energy into that, wind, solar. But first, there's a very important part of the design of the market, I think, which we should point out, and that is it runs on spot prices. Every five minutes, the market basically starts again. You have a fresh five-minute market on spot prices. Now, what difference does that make to the way the market operates?
1: Well, that's the basic economic concept on which the whole design is built: is that you have essentially like an auction every five minutes. Well, actually, you, you bid you know for the day ahead in five-minute slices. What that does is it, it sends a set of signals to the owners and operators of those plants. The traders responsible for the, those plants, which determines you know how the system, how the physical system operates. So the basic idea is that. At any given time, you've got a given set of assets. You know, you've got a given set of coal plants, gas plants, hydro plants, wind farms, solar farms, and what have you. And the question is, what's the most economically efficient way to operate those, subject to all the constraints? So you mentioned that there's a set of constraints there that need to, you, know, you need to stay within those physical uh, technical constraints. And then you're solving for what's the optimum way to... Dis- the jargon is to dispatch the plant. Which basically means, what's the answer to the question of which plants should run at what level of output in each five-minute interval?
0: Yeah, as opposed to before, say so go back back to nineteen eighty when the assets were essentially owned by the state governments. I think yeah. without exception.
1: Yeah. So how? So the question is, well, how did they do it before the market?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, the answer to that is the engineers did this. What essentially is the same calculation. So the engineers who were responsible for physically operating the system before there was a market understood the cost structure of the of the different plans and would endeavor to run that system at on a least cost basis. And, and if you go back in the literature back, I think all the way probably to the 1950s, you know, that was an operations research problem that was that's been well understood for a long time. And then essentially what the and so essentially what you would do is, you you know, you would run plants that had high capital costs, but you're just concerned about the operating costs. So plants with low operating costs would tend to be run in first priority and plants with high operating costs in, in um, later in the priority order. So known as usually known as the merit order. And so what the market essentially did is said, well, instead of letting the engineers in a central planning way, just figure out what's the cheapest way to run this system. But yeah, based on economic merit, we'll have competing owners owning different assets and they'll submit their offers to the system operator and we'll dispatch the plants based
0: on their offers. Um, you know, I offer to generate this many megawatts at this price. That becomes quite complicated for operators then, doesn't it? They, they're, not, you know, they're having to make decisions about ramping up, ramping down quite quickly So in the new world, the the plant owners, they understand their cost
1: structure. They know how much it costs them to ramp up and ramp down and to operate plants at different set points. So we're talking here about thermal plants, you know, coal plants and gas plants. They understand that cost structure and they compile their offers into the market on that basis. And then the computer engine in the central market operators takes all those offers from the generators and essentially stacks them up from the cheapest to the most expensive
0: and then issues the instructions on that basis. So from 2007 onwards what's been a trickle of wind and solar becomes a bit more than a trickle. You've got the Rudd government comes into power heavily focused on climate change, ramps up the renewable energy target from a very low amount under the Howard government to 20% And so we start to see a lot of rooftop solar, a lot of industrial-scale wind, not so much solar on an industrial scale at that stage, but it begins. And so by the end of that six years of the Labour government, the one immediate effect we see is that the price of retail electricity has gone up quite considerably, almost doubled in that period. Was that a coincidence, what was happening? Yeah,
1: so I think there's a lot to unpack in that set of observations that you've just given there, Nick. So you're right, when the renewable energy target was first implemented in, I think, 2000, 2001, it was a 2% target, so that the requirement, the legal requirement introduced in the Act was that, I think it was 2% of annual energy, electrical energy, needed to come from these sources. average over the course of the year and then the new government in 2007 the labor government put a zero on the end of that two and made it 20 percent so that is a that's an order of magnitude shift in the level that is being pushed into the system so the description that i was giving before about how the market works was a description of the wholesale the five minute wholesale spot electricity market but that's not the whole story of how you get electrons to the customer. You've got a transmission system and you've got a distribution system to get it to the customer. And there are significant costs downstream of the power plants in that part of the system. And so what you tend to, when you step back and look at the whole cost picture, what you tend to see is that as you bring more and more of these intermittent generation sources into the system, you tend to drive up costs in a whole lot of places. One of those is in other generators having to ramp up and down and other places in the transmission and distribution system. And that feeds through into the customer bills. So I think that there's a very important point here, which is that in electricity systems, to to keep an electricity system operating, you've got to exactly match the generation and the load. So an economist would call that supply and demand and an engineer would call that generation and load, those things have to be exactly matched almost exactly at uh, almost a millisecond level continuously. And if you fail to do that, you can find yourself in a situation where the whole system will collapse into a blackout within about a minute. So that technical requirement is quite severe and the need to meet that requirement at all times has costs associated with it. And if you introduce forms of generation that are not matched to the customer load level, which is also varying, then you tend to make it more expensive to run the system.
0: So you've got a technical engineering issue there. Yeah. There's something else is happening, isn't it? And that is that intermittent renewables, when they're available, actually get pushed to the top of the pecking order, don't they? They become the go-to source of energy. Well, Why?
1: Well, yeah, indirectly, the way that... the electricity market people would visualize that is they actually slot into the bottom of the merit order stack. So they are sort of first cap off the rank and then everything else is stacked on after that. The reason for that, um, I mean, there's a kind of logical reason for that, right? Which is that the what an economist would call the short run marginal cost of generation from wind or solar is zero. So you're not you don't have to burn any more fuel. You don't have to incur any more variable maintenance to to generate an extra unit of electricity it's basically just if the wind's blowing or the sun's shining that output is there whether you take it or not and so the the rational the first thought is that a rational owner of such an asset would offer that to the market at a zero price and then other generators who've got fuel costs for example would offer their output at some higher price and the way the market works in terms of price formation is that the last little bit of generation that's needed to just exactly balance that load like i mentioned before that sets the price for the whole market for everyone whose offers have been accepted and who is generating in that five minute time slice and so if that's a a gas plant that offered in at 10 cents a kilowatt hour that's the market price for that period if it's a diesel generator offering at 30 cents that's the price for everyone but on the other hand, if you get to the point where you've got lots and lots of wind and solar being available in the market, and let's say at a particular time of day, uh, perhaps on a weekend, um, with when the, the customer demand is low, you can actually have a situation where the price might fall to zero or even a negative number. I just said that you would think the logical price offer from wind and solar would be zero, but it turns out that it's actually a negative number. So the, the, the next thought is that the owners of those assets are receiving, under the renewable energy scheme that you mentioned before, they're receiving certificates, which are issued by the government authority. For each megawatt hour you generate, you get one of these certificates, and those things have a value in the
0: market. might be $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour, for example, or 5 or more. So they can actually afford to operate at a... So a they negative c- price and make, and make a profit.
1: Right, because the condition is they're not going to receive any money for those certificates unless they're actually generating. So they want to make sure that their offer is accepted by the market operator. So the rational thing for them to do is to offer the negative of whatever the certificate value is.
0: And so you start to see renewable energy companies driven by the profit they make from certificates rather than the profit from generating electricity. Yeah,
1: that's essentially the situation with this kind of market is that the primary product is the piece of paper, it's the certificate, and the electricity is essentially the byproduct. Because under the law, anyone who's got retail load or a large industrial customer with their own load is legally obliged to buy X percent of these certificates or pay the fine. And, and so that creates the market demand for the certificates. That then becomes the driver. But then it, it gets more complicated, <laughs> Nick, which is... The, so the, the next thing that happens is if you've got a lot of... Particularly if you've got a lot of wind and solar in a particular location where there might be, let's say, a transmission constraint. So you, your wind farm is, let's say, next door to my wind farm. Yeah. And you want to make sure you don't get curtailed because there's not enough transmission capacity. So you don't want to bid, let's say your certificates are selling for, say you've sold them to someone for, let's say, five cents. And you want to make sure you're getting that revenue and you don't want to be curtailed. And so what you end up doing, and then I behave the same way because I don't want to be curtailed either. So we both offer all of our output to the market operator at the floor price, which is minus a thousand dollars a megawatt hour, minus a hundred cents, minus a dollar a kilowatt hour in the hope that someone else will set the market
0: price and will get positive revenues. Yeah, sure. It's it's essentially a a loss leader, a dumping sort of behavior. Yeah, you, you could just you could describe it like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is why yeah, once you get renewables in the market with I guess we'd call that an implicit subsidy, they're being implicitly subsidized if not explicitly subsidized by if not by the government, but by a mechanism the government has placed in place that ends up, consumers end up paying for. Immediately, I suppose you start to see why coal is going to be bottom of the queue or gas is because they actually have to charge price for their product, electricity, that reflects their costs and investment.
1: Yeah, so the market strategy, the, the strategy that the coal and the gas plants adopt In offering their generation into the market will change in the presence of the wind and solar right it can be rational for a generator that has high startup and shutdown costs they might be motivated to actually offer in certain five minute time periods to offer in even at a negative price which is a way of saying to the market operator look i don't really want to be turned off because i've got shutdown and startup costs so i'm willing to actually pay the market pay for the privilege of being allowed to generate for certain time periods but only you'll only adopt that kind of strategy if you're confident that there's other times when you can when your offers will be accepted at a much higher price and that that will compensate and on average overall you'll end up maximizing your profits so you, but you can see how the interact the dynamic interaction yeah. between the renewables and the thermal plants can can get quite complicated yeah When you start to see saturation of wind and solar, you can get the situation where essentially you force the thermal plants to close.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of knock-on effects happening in the way, aren't there? So as the profit margins are squeezed for coal and gas generators or coal generators principally, they've got less to put back into maintenance or putting in new plants. So plants begin to run down more quickly than you'd expect. There's no investment left for, you know, putting in a new set of gear, which you might do halfway through the life of a plant. Otherwise, you start to see coal gets driven out of the market much quicker than you might expect and much quicker than we're ready for.
1: Yeah, that's right. That, that can happen. But
0: there's, and there's another effect
1: that's also observable, which is that there's a sort of you can, I sometimes call it a cannibalisation effect among the renewable generators. Because if you've got, they're all driven by the same ultimate driving force, which is the sun and the weather. And so they tend to be highly coincident in their output. And they're not ultimately in control of their own output because they are weather dependent. And so when it's very sunny and there's maximum output from solar, that tends to push down the wholesale spot price, the five minute spot price. And the same effect happens for wind. And so they, one of the saturation phenomena is they start cannibalizing their own revenues as well as the revenues of the thermal plants. But, and then, so this throws up a paradox. What you've just touched on is what I call the power system paradox, which is that the system as a whole needs certain assets, but then the, it doesn't make financial sense to the owners of those assets
0: to keep them available to the system. So when you get to this part of the, part of the development of the system where you need coal in there, you need because you need dispatchable power at key points, i.e. Most, most of the 24 hours in a day, you need them. And yet they're not there because the owners of those assets, the owners of those generators, are no longer finding it profitable to provide the electricity. What
1: happens next? That's when you've got a really serious problem because you're gonna to struggle to keep the system operating and to keep the lights on as the saying goes. So you, what you've essentially done is you've forced assets off the system before there's a proper replacement or set of replacements f- for the set of services that
0: those assets have been providing. And would you find a similar thing happening in every country that's introduced Intermittent Renewable Energy Act to the same degree? Yeah. Or are we just unique yeah. in this?
1: No, no, it's not. This problem is not unique in Australia. Okay, so there are there are versions of this problem that are observable in the U.S. and Europe and other places. One thing we should say is that every power system is unique in some sense. Like there are no two power systems in the world that are completely identical with one another. So because of reasons of geography and size and scale and generation mix and all those things, and interconnections, they're all slightly different from one another but there are certain sort of fundamental characteristics that underpin them all. They're all operating on the same laws of physics and the same laws of hearing networks.
0: Yeah, so. So What's the effect, so we then introduce enough renewable energy or intermittent renewable electricity into the system that we are seeing regularly, almost every day, this massive U-shaped effect in demand. So in the middle of the day, there's usually plenty of solar and usually it's often some wind that means there's plenty of electricity. You can be, it's not unusual, is it, for the national electricity market to be entirely supplied by wind oh, and solar in, for an hour or two a day? In
1: in South Australia, not the whole system, but in South Australia.
0: So that's what they,
1: that's what they call the duck curve because when you look at the shape of that curve throughout the, the entire day, which you might call that the residual load curve. So if you add it up, all the loads of all the customers, and then subtract the solar. You get a shape that looks like a duck. So basically, the tail of the duck is a sort of the morning peak when everyone gets up and starts getting ready for work, and then the sun comes up, and then you subtract that from the load, and then in the evening when the sun sets, you go back up and you have a second peak higher than the first, which is the head of the duck. So. That's a problem. So the question is, what happens when in the in the sort of the middle of the
0: yeah, I mean the, you just in the middle switch, of the day, you're, you're simply switching off coal fired generators. You're, or?
1: Well, you're unloading you're unloading the main system, and so what actually happens in South Australia is they have periods of time where the total wind and solar generation can exceed the in South Australia can exceed the total customer demand in South Australia, but to keep the system. Stable and operating, they tend, for most of the time, to still be running some gas plants, and then so then they've got excess wind, wind and solar in excess of demand, plus gas generation, additional generation in excess of demand, and then that all has to be exported eastwards into Victoria, yeah, because you because you still got a
0: balance, right? Yeah, and you've introduced there another technical issue: synchronization. You've got to synchronize the DC power with the ac power at at 50 hertz yeah so the, with, but not just that you've got to sync it exactly in time pretty much to the millisecond so sync yeah so people
1: describe this system as an ac synchronous system or a synchronous ac system so that large high voltage transmission system is running on alternating current and so what synchronization means is that all those large generators on that system actually this is when people say the grid, this is really what the grid is. All those large power plants on the system are all in sync at nominal 50 Hertz. So say nominal 50 Hertz, they're actually almost never precisely 50 point, you know, zero, zero, zero. They'll be like slightly above or slightly under, but they're all in sync with one another. And what that means is that, the, so the waveform that, you know, sine curve that's got 50 cycles a second is, is locked together for all those machines from Queensland to New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, all in perfect sync. And so they're actually spinning as if they were one machine. Like there's, there's 16 coal-fired power plants plus the gas plants and there's something like, I think it's about 48 individual coal units plus the gas units. So for any unit that's on and generating at any given time, they're locked together like as if they're one single machine. So it's a giant machine of machines. That is the grid. It's the transmission lines that connect them together that make that possible. But that invisible thing is the grid. So the wind and solar plants are putting out DC power, which then has to go through an inverter to to invert that to AC power, which then has to be locked onto and matched with that exact signal that the big plants are giving.
0: That's why we have to keep, or in South Australia, they will keep a little bit of gas running to keep that synchronicity, if you know. It's like,
1: like I, I tend to... One way to visualize this is a spinning top. You know, if if you spin a spinning top, that will stand up vertically by itself, and you can even bump it, and it'll wobble and then smooth out again. Whereas if you tried to balance that without spinning it, if you know, if you just let that go, it'll just fall over. So it's that rotating mass of all those machines that provides that underlying electromechanical stability
0: to the whole system. Now you have some. We now have the technology and they're installing the technology that can theoretically allow a grid to run on 100% wind and solar alone.
1: Well, they call these grid-forming inverters. Yeah. And they've been demonstrated for short periods of time on very small systems. But it's still an open question in my mind as to whether that's possible on a large-scale system. So that's the first question. Can you really get a large-scale system with that many devices with electronic control through these grid-forming inverters to achieve stability? And I think that's an open question. My sense is that the answer to that is no, you can't. And then the second question is, well, if you can achieve that technically, how much is that going to cost? And can you achieve the reliability levels that you want?
0: Yeah, uh, certainly it'll be a world first, is what what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another world first for Australia. Okay, so go back to the duck curve. Let me take you back to the duck curve. Now what happens at that point, I I always see it as a sort of the moment the ute pulls up in the drive, the guy gets out, cranks up the air conditioning, grabs himself a beer, uh, and the sun is going down. And we may be unlucky and the wind might drop off in some key locations as well. So the amount of renewable energy just drops quite dramatically, often in a period of about half an hour. So then what happens? How do we keep the lights on? Well, that's
1: probably one of the more challenging times of day for system operation. So it was always the case that on a hot summer afternoon, you would see very steep ramp up of demand on, on the system. But, you know, in the, traditionally you'd be sort of you'd be ready for that. and You'd have a whole lot of generation that's generating at a steady level and then ramps up to meet that peak. And you bring on, you know, the more expensive generation to do that. So the open cycle gas turbines and the hydro plants would be sort of ho- holding there ready to generate. Whereas now you've got, that's being exacerbated by the falling output from the solar. And if the wind's dying as well, that exacerbates the problem. So yeah, it's that's a very difficult time of day. And to how that's going to be achieved in the system
0: going forward, I think that's a huge question. Because at the moment, typically what we see when you look at the the interactive map, it shows you that the, the way electricity is flowing from state to state, you'll often see suddenly Queensland becomes crucial. Queensland has got a lot of coal generation left. New South Wales, some, but it's getting less and less by <laughs> yeah. the day. It seems. Yeah. So suddenly Queensland providing all that coal doesn't and the price goes shooting up because yeah. it's a spot price. Why aren't the coal producer coal generators making so much money at that point that it'll see them through the rest of the day? Oh, they, anyone who's generating
1: at the time the price goes to those levels is making a lot of money. But the question is, you know, on balance overall, how, does that, how do the numbers pan out? You know, you can... Because remember, the price can go to very high levels. So it's, uh, I'm trying to remember the market price cap now. It's ratcheted up. Well over like, a 1000 Oh, no, it's, it's over $15,000 yeah. a megawatt hour. $15,000 a megawatt hour. So $100 a megawatt hour is 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So you just divide that 15,000 by 10 and that's the cents per kilowatt hour price. It's, it's very high, but, but it's volatile and doesn't make up for the times when the prices are low or negative or when you're not being dispatched at all. So for an asset owner, it's not just the price that's important. It's actually the common, It's the revenue, right? That they're getting to cover their costs so it's a combination of the price they're seeing and the amount of dispatch that they're getting
0: we've now got well beyond that point we now have much more intermittent renewable energy in the system than we did have even five years ago and it's growing the government says that we need to have many more times what we've got in existing by 2050 by 2030 we have to i think double the amount of renewable energy we have in the system New problems start to develop at this point, right? But let's make an observation here. So, the question that
1: should be asked is, what's the optimum amount of wind and solar? Well, the, the government system? would say it's one hundred percent. Well, okay, and I'm going to challenge that. So, there is a belief out there that a hundred percent is the optimum amount of renewables. I mean, but-
0: the Victorian government is modelling its energy policy on a sort of utopian point at which it is one hundred. Not just carbon free, but 100% solar and wind.
1: And and wind and maybe with a bit of hydro and then supposedly all backed up with batteries or pumped hydro storage, yeah. But, I mean, from a purely economic point of view, I think any sort of well-trained economist would look at that and think, well, that seems like a strange, you know, conclusion and what's actually sitting underneath that. And from an engineering point of view as well, you know, to, to claim that such an extreme point would be the optimum is highly questionable, just right off the bat. And then when you actually go away and do the work, what you find is... So there's a there's an engineer's instinct that says the optimum is probably close to the natural capacity factor of the resource, right? So for so solar in Victoria, it, you'll probably generate something like 15% of the theoretical maximum output. You know, if the sun was overhead at midday all the time, that's 100%, but it's not. And so in Victoria, south of the divide, it's about 15%. Up here in Queensland, it's something for a fixed panel, it's something like 20%. If you've got a a tilting panel like in a solar farm, you might get 24%. And then for wind, you're probably in the low 30s, low to mid 30s. And so for wind and solar collectively, it's something roughly like 25% on that order. Now, that's actually the amount of wind and solar we've got in the national market at the moment. And, and when you do the detailed modeling, you actually get a result that's like not far away from that initial kind of engineer's instinct.
0: Yeah, this is becoming quite well-known and quite established and accepted around the world, right? In the United States, California, and Europe, mm. uh, call it the 60-40 rule if you want to be you know optimistic and say you're getting 40% out of your yeah. renewables, but Probably it's more like the 70-30 or even uh, 75-25. But that's the point at which you say renewable capacity beyond this point. And by capacity, we don't mean dispatchable. We mean what's on the nameplate. Just simply building more windmills at this point. Unless we can put them in areas where they're giving us a radically different flow, but actually that doesn't happen. It's suboptimal. yeah Yeah, it's suboptimal so the amount that you can put
1: in and actually where that optimal number lands is not a fixed number of its own it depends on what else is in the system so if you're for example Chile or maybe even say New Zealand where you've got a lot of hydro and you can change the way you dispatch that hydro to not just meet the peaks and troughs in customer demand but you can fit it around what the wind and solar is doing you can probably get you can probably squeeze more wind and solar in the system than if you don't have very much hydro, for example. So there's an optimum point somewhere. You can technically push past that optimum point, but you'll be making the system more and more expensive. And if you take it to too much of an extreme, I think what you'll find is you might not be able to technically operate the system effectively.
0: Yeah. You've also got a problem. Well, I can think of two problems. One one is You've got a land problem, even in a country as big as Australia. The Victorian government have modelled it and say if they wanted to go to the whole Victoria 100% wind and solar on land, they would have to use 70% of the farmland. And clearly that's not happening, and now they're yeah. building it in the water instead. But So there's, number one, a land problem. The second problem as an economist must surely be capital allocation, or in this case, gross capital misallocation, people are putting money into these things and they're not cheap, right, which could be going into something that could be quite useful right now. And that would be a source of dispatchable power or perhaps even, you know, a, a fast gas, for instance, to back up what we've got. But money's not going into those. It's going, it's being directed into renewables, which you're saying are now suboptimal.
1: Yeah. I, and I think we should be asking the question, you know, wait, stop, think, is this really optimal or not? Because I don't, I certainly don't think it is, and that's consistent with the research work that I've been involved in and other research work by others that I see and read the results of. So, yeah, it's a serious issue. And the other thing, Nick, to just observe here is that this is really, it's highly nonlinear. So when you look at, if you plot the curve where you go from, no wind and solar a sort of 10%, 20 25% and then keep going to 100% and look at what does the shape of that curve look like. As you go from nothing to the optimal, the cost of the total system will come down a little bit. And then if you keep going past that, it just becomes this enormously steeply increasing cost function as the cost of the total system increases. You, you talked about land. There's another important point here on land because a lot of people will do a, a simple back-of-the-envelope calculation It's like we need this much energy, I can get so much from each solar panel, how many solar panels do I need? But when you do the whole system analysis, what you find is that as you get into, you know, through saturation to these very high levels, you end up actually throwing away a lot of the output from the wind and solar plants at high shares. And so you have to enormously overbuild the system to match the... It comes back to this load-matching problem. in in, right so and that's why the the total system costs
0: curve becomes so steep as well and it comes back to the capital misallocation because somebody's putting this in there and they're expecting to get a a return on that capital It, it will inevitably end up eventually on the consumer's electricity bill
1: yeah or the taxpayer so that's right so you know, if the economics are saying sort of actually we're past the optimum point, stop now, then you get to the point where you've got to keep finding another subsidy from somewhere else. So is it more cross-subsidies from electricity consumers or do you then start bringing in subsidies from taxpayers? It's it's one or the other. and this And because the steepness of that curve gets, you know, greater and greater, the capital misallocation becomes more and more severe
0: as you keep pushing. Let's say... You've got this all wrong. You don't know this area as well as the experts at the Australian Energy Market Operator and others who will insist that this 100% target is not only achievable, but is necessary. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. When you get to this point where you've exceeded the optimum level of renewables, which we've identified at, I don't know, 3070 or 2570, wherever we put it, How can they then argue that it's useful to continue? One argument might be, well, by 2030, and this is according to the Energy Minister, we'll have a thriving green hydrogen market. We'll put our doubts aside for a moment as to whether that will happen, whether we can even get the technological capability, let alone the ability to scale it up economically, etc. Now, if they did that, you could imagine, well, there would be a use for a lot more wind and solar during the day you could use this huge amount of energy at at relatively low cost because it's as you say the marginal cost is still to make this useful substance called green hydrogen which we could store and we could then use that to turn back to electricity when we need it or we could use it for trucks or ships or make ammonia to fertilize our fields is that Feasible. Could that happen? I don't believe so. No. I, the short answer to that question is no.
1: Because when you sit down and do the numbers on that, that that's the conclusion you come to. So you, there's a few things you have to realise about hydrogen. One is that it's, it is actually very difficult and expensive to store to, and to ship. And what you're talking about here is you're talking about making hydrogen from renewable energy, so from wind and solar energy and then turning that back into electricity again. So you go from electricity to hydrogen, you store it, and then you generate electricity again. And so when you do the numbers on the losses, the physical energy losses along these chains, and you find that it's all sort of working against you in a very unfortunate way, you're talking about making hydrogen from part-time energy, so wind and solar is part-time energy, low capacity factor. And then there's this theory that You're going to use the spill energy the problem that i talked about before that you end up having to curtail a lot of this which is even more part-time by definition to run electrolyzers that you really would want to be running 24 7 not part-time and then you're going to suffer all these losses along this chain to generate electricity again at the other end you do all those numbers and it's not a happy story
0: so the whole idea of green hydrogen that's made by from these sources of energy only at least, is really just wishful thinking.
1: I think there is a lot of wishful thinking that's gone into it. And I think we should distinguish between the export story and the domestic electricity system story, you know, as a sort of source of so-called firming in the Australian electricity system. When you look at the export story, you've got all those part-time problems and the severe economics of that that I talked about. And then you've got the cost of conversion and storage and transportation and reconversion at the other end. Everyone that I know of that's done the numbers has come to the conclusion you don't chill the hydrogen down to minus 253 Celsius and ship it. You turn it into ammonia and you ship the ammonia and then you convert it back at the other end. The problem with that is that assumes there's this enormous market for hydrogen in the Indo-Pacific, for example, or even as far away as Germany. And then you think, well okay in the indo-pacific if the customers really want zero emissions hydrogen they can make it themselves they can build a small modular reactor a nuclear power plant electrolyze the hydrogen or there's actually other ways you can make hydrogen using nuclear as well they make it at home on a full-time 24 7 basis not on a part-time basis and then you eliminate that whole conversion and shipping chain And so the green hydrogen from Australia is never going to be able to compete with that product. And then you think, well, okay, if they're going to build a nuclear plant to make carbon-free hydrogen, then they don't need as much hydrogen as we thought either. They only need a little bit for certain niche applications. They'll just use the electricity directly and get rid of all the losses in that chain. So, you know, that's... I think people are starting to realise that that story's falling apart.
0: And it's assuming we've got some natural advantage of producers that others don't, whereas, in fact, the most important advantage that you need if you want to become a global hydrogen hub is cheap energy. Yeah, if you're going to compare green with green, so if the rule is it
1: has to be made from wind and solar and wind and water, then we probably would be the cheapest place on the planet, with the possible exception of certain parts of the Middle East or North Africa, but we'd be globally very, very competitive. But the problem is, you know, you will bump into competition from another product that's also zero carbon and that has, I believe, an unassailable cost advantage to the end of time. So, <laughs> right. That being? That, that being, well, that's nuclear, you know, hydrogen made from nuclear. Yeah.
0: yeah. Let's go to nuclear, but let's go back to where we were. We got to that point where we decided that we, have at least in your analysis, and I see no reason to disagree with you, we have or are close to getting to the point of peak intermittent renewables in the... It, it, we can't... Call it saturation. Saturation, saturation point. point. We're close yeah. to saturation point. Yeah. So where do we go from here? We, first of all, from a market point of view, we need to incentivise. We need some way of incentivising people to invest in dispatchable forms of yeah, electricity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that may be coal, maybe clean coal, maybe gas... Or it may be nuclear, but how do we incentivize that now yeah, in the market? Yeah,
1: that's, so that's a very big question, market incentives for investment. And I think that's an important question. It's on my list of important things that people aren't even thinking about properly and certainly not talking about properly yet. We've got to start talking about this. And it's a challenge. I think the challenge comes back to the architects of electricity reform on this point, because The theory back when the competitive electricity markets were implemented was that, you know, you send this very pure, very sort of textbook perfect price signal, you know, this five-minute price signal. You send that out and investors see that and they respond in the right place at the right time with the right kind of assets, they invest. And then we always have... the the sort of the best system that we can under the circumstances but i think that has to me that has basically fallen apart that's not the world we're in now maybe if we didn't introduce these subsidies and distortions and all that maybe we would have had a world where we would get the right investment at the right time in
0: the right place. It's plate. happening too quickly, though. Yes, you're right. You know, Adam Smith would probably be delighted with the sort of price signals that are sent out at five-minute intervals. But you don't make a decision to invest in anything at a five-minute yeah, interval. Yeah, that's let, right. Let alone something yeah. as complicated or expensive as a gas or yeah. electricity generator.
1: Yeah, so, if, I mean, if we were able to take this story back to Edinburgh in the 1700s <laughs> or bring Adam Smith into the room here in, in Brisbane and ask him about it, I'm not sure he would think that 1990s-style electricity competitive markets is a brilliant idea. I'm not convinced of that. I think he would still see that there is a role in certain infrastructure sectors for the state. So it turns out that... This was questioned at the time. Actually, this was questioned before the 1990s. It was questioned in 1983 by another couple of professors at MIT. And they said, if you implement that kind of market, you're not necessarily going to get the kind of investments you want, certainly large-scale investments. They said, if you want anything like the kind of traditional large power plants that underpin power systems, you really need long-term contracts. And that's i think it's pretty obvious now that, that that's the case and it's also obvious that on the debt side of the investment equation the bankers just do not have any confidence at all in any sort of price forecast based on this five minute spot market we talked to them all in 20, in june 2017 we interviewed almost all the banks the big australian banks asian banks american banks european banks that are active in australia they all told us the same thing
0: and when you put on top of that a layer of corporate social responsibility right yeah. they're now making decisions based on what they think energy sources that are best for our planet rightly or wrongly well, they're making those decisions that's yeah. skewing investment well
1: that too. and that was actually part of the of that piece of research and the research question you know the research question was you know is it even or sort of implicitly underneath the research question is it even possible to think about getting commercial debt for a new coal-fired power plant and the answer was well, it's not 100% completely impossible but you know you've got to meet these and these requirements but in the course of those conversations they all these guys just explicitly said they don't hold back the bankers they'll tell you they said no one can produce a bankable price forecast of the national electricity market. And the entire theory of these markets is that that price signal will underpin investment. And they basically said, well, sorry, but it doesn't.
0: Yeah. So your bad news in this reform-averse era is we need quite a substantial piece of reform to reform the way the electricity market itself operates.
1: Yes, I'm giving this... Message very clearly to conservative politicians, to left-wing politicians, if they're you know interested in listening to green politicians. Anyone in a position of responsibility has got to understand whether we like it or not. There's a great big dose of reform coming. It's whether we go for nuclear or not, and whether we like it or not, we are going to have to deal with this problem.
0: And the only alternative to that I can see is massive government investment on a scale that would make the nuclear submarine program look tiny to try and force the market with all the consequences that come from that misallocation of capital.
1: We could end up with massive government investment. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the only solution to this problem. We certainly could do really stupid, really enormous, really huge government investment, you know, throwing money at this problem. or We could step back, take a deep breath, ask some really difficult questions and work out, the way I'm framing this question, Nick, is where does the market end and the state begin? Where does the state end and the market begin? When we come to the electricity sector and when
0: we come to the energy sector more broadly, we need to be having this
1: conversation. Yeah,
0: and it needs to be a more sophisticated conversation than just simply privatise or nationalise, which yeah, is where yeah, we're
1: Yes, the kind of left versus right, black versus white, bookended conversation like that isn't going to solve this problem.
0: We need a way of providing this investment, probably similar to a lot of the smart private public infrastructure investment that's done, whether it's tunnels here in Brisbane or better still, that I think better still in terms of the model the way they do it in Sydney. We can do that, but we're going to first have to reform the way we price Electricity into the market. Yeah, that's right.
1: How do we discover the price? The the sort of the idea in the '90s was, and I think a lot of politicians found this very appealing, was you know all we need to do is pass this elegant electricity act, which is actually a South Australian act in the case of Australia that all the other states you know adopted. We just pass a good act, then we write a set of technical market rules we set up some regulatory bodies, and then politicians will never need to worry about electricity ever again. (laughs) And the reality, I mean, as Tim Stone in the UK says, you know, in these sectors, government owns failure. So when the market collapses, when it stops working, when there's disruptions to the power supply, people don't go and criticise this mysterious abstract thing called the market. They just look straight at the minister and they say, you're a responsible minister, what are you going to do about it?
0: Two questions before we wrap up, Stephen. The first, going back to the conversation we were having earlier about the comparison between the way the market used to be run and the way it was run past, post-1998 when we moved to spot prices. And you made the point that in the earlier market, there were actual engineers sitting in the room working these things out with slide rules and abacuses and things like that does does the new market have people in the room or is it all done by computers
1: oh yeah no there's definitely people in the room but actually there's an important point here as well which is you know when we talk about aemo it stands for australian energy markets operator so it's actually markets plural and it's energy because they're running both electricity and gas markets and they're running markets in different parts of the country but They actually forgot the S in the name. So they're really the Australian energy system and markets operator. It really should be AISMO. And so there's a floor where the market is operated. And then there's another floor where the physical engineering system is operated. When everything's going fine, the market just operates and the system more or less takes care of itself, let's say. When there are problems it's the system operator who has authority that's higher than the market operator. And we saw that, so we saw that in June when the market dispatch engine wouldn't solve and the decision was made to suspend the market. So that five minute spot market was suspended for, I think it was more than a week. And by the way, I heard that yesterday in New South Wales, they suspended the spot market in the New South Wales region yesterday afternoon. Right, so that's, and then, so what's happened there is that the engineers have taken over and just said, right, we'll just do this like we did in the old days, and we'll just issue manual dispatch instructions and keep everything working, and we'll sort the money out
0: later. So, in effect, the problem, no doubt unintended, but the problem with it was that the engineers suddenly were not part of that decision-making process. They were just pushed off back to the generating plants and said, here are your instructions, you make it work. Yeah, I think probably what happened in the 90s is a lot of the sort of the old
1: guys got, you know, sort of retired off. And the, the philosophy was, well, yeah, thanks, but we don't really need you anymore. And then there was this shift of emphasis sort of onto economists through the reform years and then onto finance guys and traders, you know, as the market got up and running. And the idea that, the, you know, the physical system will more or less take care of itself. And I think, um, yeah, the, the wheel's kind of turning, I have to say.
0: Finally, to nuclear, because I know you've just returned from a fact-finding tour of the US and Canada, looking at small modular reactors. Um, what is your verdict about uh, their potential in the Australian context? How much of our energy problem can they solve and how quickly? I think they can solve a lot of the problems. So if you look
1: at this class of technology, it actually ticks the boxes that everyone wants to see ticked you know, it can tick the cost box, you know, reasonable, um, cost levels, um, definitely the reliability box. And of course you're getting power with zero emissions. So, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that, um, that at a minimum we need to
0: be considering this technology. And, um, let me hone in on that cost and, uh ask you to, I won't ask you to put figures around it because that's that's hard at this stage for a lot of reasons. But when you look at, uh, say, Victoria's plan for offshore wind, which PwC prices at $29 billion to do what they want to do with wind, uh, and for that they're getting a lot more intermittent renewables, and there's probably considerable transmission costs on top of that. Is that, how much... How 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 snugly in the ballpark does nuclear sit if we're talking about that sort of money? Oh, very well. I mean, I, I haven't done
1: a specific sort of deep dive analysis on Victoria, looking at you know offshore wind in Bass Strait versus say a fleet of small modular reactors to replace the Latrobe Valley lignite stations as they retire. But I would be very surprised if you know a, a well planned of SMR plants in the Latrobe Valley would not be much, much lower total system cost for Victoria and more reliable than offshore wind turbines in Bass Strait and, of course, um, with with no CO2 emissions. I think what you'll end up with with the wind plan is you'll fail to um, solve the CO2 problem because you'll end up having to go to other solutions and
0: still having residual CO2 emissions in the grid. Thank you, Stephen, for that. uh, It's been uh, an education from my point of view and I look forward, we should do this again and unpick some other areas of this complex problem. Thanks, Nick. It's been a real pleasure.